is sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. An hour before Democrat leaders were scheduled to go to the White House to meet with the president to talk about rebuilding our nation's infrastructure, the Speaker of the House actually accused the President of the United States of engaging in a cover-up. There is an itch in our caucus for impeachment, but let's not uh, deal with that yet. It's not just the Speaker Pelosi. Adam Schiff done this for two years, lied to the American public. Chairman Nadler, people ought to look at this. When he ran for chairman of the committee, you know what he went to his Democrat friends to say why to vote for him? Because he was the best person to be in place to impeach the president. And now, Stacey Washington. Hey, hey, hey. Welcome to the program. Thanks for being here today. I am so excited. We're going to have so much more for you right here in this hour of the show. Um, Specifically, I'm going to be chatting with a wonderful guest here on the show today, David Almasi, National Center for Public Policy Research. He's going to be with us and um, discussing the Free Enterprise Project, United Airlines dumping the National Rifle Association. Um, And then we had our wonderful guest last hour was Colonel Alan West. And we're always so glad when he has time to come and be with us here on the show. Um, Right now, I want to pivot over to... Um, The Life of Julia or the Pajama Boy Culture. Do you remember when The Life of Julia came out and President Obama showed us how Julia never needed anyone else but the government? Julia was this fictional character and they had an infographic that they actually turned into like a cartoon. And Julia went through her whole life and the government was right there with her the whole time. And she never had any problems with the government. The government was always right on time. It was like perfect government, utopian government. And she was a utopian American. She, She didn't even... And get fat over the course of her life. She was just, she's just perfect. So Victor Davis Hanson talks about the life of Julia or pajama boy culture um, and how both of those things have yielded an interesting economic type of a phenomenon over the past 10 years. Here he is in number five. We had 10 years from 2007 to 17, as you alluded to, of flat economic growth. And this new generation piled up a trillion and a half dollars in student debt and they prolonged their adolescence. It was a life of Julia or pajama boy culture. And they did not have children, they did not marry, they did not buy homes. Those are all the traditional stimuli that make somebody take the attention off themselves and onto somebody else. They're conservative stimuli. Right. Right. So, (laughs) uh, where, where do we, change that how do we change what he's describing there um well first of all we have to have our kids this starts with the kids we have to have them before they're calling in before they're before they're you know doing doing any of the adult stuff um we have to have them understand how life works and that's the showing of how life works it's one thing to talk to kids about it. It's another thing to show them, to open up the budget and say, hey, you know when I tell you don't throw away food? Here's why. Here's how much money we spend on food. And we just recently had a conversation like this. It was like a year and a half ago, actually, maybe not so recent, but um, we, were, we were out to dinner and one of the kids ordered something that she didn't really, I mean, she liked it, but she didn't really love it. And she was like, ah, I don't think I'm going to take that you know, as the leftovers. 
And I was like, you should take it because even if you're not interested in eating it, one of us might say, oh, you know, I'm, I'll have that for my lunch on Monday or what have you, but you should take it. And so I got home and I was really frustrated because she was kind of resistant to doing it. And I just pulled up our, our bank account and I, you know, they'll give you that pie chart to show how much you're spending on uh, eating out and, you know, full disclosure, sometimes the categorizations have to be updated, but it gives you a general, it's pretty accurate picture of what you're spending and on what. And so I wrote some of the numbers down and I took them into the kitchen. And that night at dinner, I just grabbed my little sheet of paper and and I said, look, this is how much we're spending a year on eating out. And there was silence around the kitchen. (laughs) The kids were like, what? I said, yeah. So when I say, you should take your meal with you or don't order that unless you're sure that's what you want to eat. That's what you should do. And also, we should probably cut back on eating out a little bit because you're getting so used to it that you treat it like food at home, which by the way, you also shouldn't throw away either. Now, what I'm saying here is that these real life lessons are ours to teach to our kids. They're actually the best antidote to that teacher who's toying around with socialism or that history teacher who's kind of rewriting the way America came to be the superpower that it is. There is a way around that. And the way around it is to make sure that we show the kids the truth. And, and telling someone the truth, fantastic. Showing it to them in raw numbers, While we're talking about it, this is how much we spend on gas in a month, in a year. This is how much we spend on electricity while you're leaving all the lights on in the house and not cutting them out. You know, when you leave the room, you don't cut the light out. This is how much we spend on water. So, you know, yeah, everybody likes a 30 minute shower, but this is what, this is our water bill. Once kids start to see those realities, they just change their behavior. Kids are not some other species. They're, they're just like adults. We change our behavior when we're shown the truth. We're like, Oh, you know what? I don't like, I don't like that. I'm going to change my, my behavior. Or I like that. I'm going to do more of this. We are prone to the same types of influences and uh, behavioral modifications. Children can be, they can experience those same kind of epiphanies as well. And so if we take the time to do that at home, That means when the kids are in school, you know, because not everybody's going to be able to pull their kids out of public school. As much as I advocate for that, you pull your kids out or you get in that school and you work and you make it yours. Teachers can't go up against you if you're always there. If you come to parent-teacher conference, if you come to the PTA, PTO meetings, if you engage with the principal, if you're in that building and you and a group of really concerned parents are visible and you push back when you see garbage coming through, you push back. You get with other parents and you say, you know, we may not all be the same all uh, politically, but we all have kids in this district. And do you really agree with kids being taught X? Some of the parents will say, yeah, because they're depraved and they don't care if their kids turn out horribly. They don't care. They're horrible parents. But there are a ton of them who are sitting by and they're silent. And they're like, well, I don't agree with this, but I'm not going to be the one to go say anything about it. All you need to say is you don't have to really say anything yourself. I just need to know that I have your support that we're representing a group of parents who we're going to come in and we're going to come in like a lion on this thing. This is our building. Taxpayers pay for the building. We pay for the electricity. We pay for the salaries of the people who work here. And when they need to replace the, you know, $50,000 air conditioning unit on the top of this building, they're going to ask for a bond issue. 
and taxpayers will pay for that too. So yes, we appreciate the teachers and their expertise. They have bachelor's degrees in education and master's degrees in education and instruction and curriculum and instruction. And some of them have PhDs and, and, you know, we're excited about having these people teach our kids, but they have to understand there are limits to their level of control. They can't commandeer the minds of our children and put them on a path to destruction. We can allow them to usurp our authority. And these are conversations that parents around the country should be having. When you're looking at those teachers, yes, teachers are wonderful people. They're gifted. And I believe teaching is, um, as well as a profession, it's kind of like a calling where teachers are very similar. I don't know if you noticed that or not. They're very similar in their kind of outlook and their orientation. They're very, they're very upbeat. Good, you know, obviously there are anomalies. Not all teachers, not 100%, but most, especially if they're in the primary grade years. So these people are coming in with the intention of helping, the intention of being helpful, of, of educating. But every person needs a check and a balance. I have checks and balances here on, on the work that I do on this program. I have checks and balances in my home. I am a check and a balance in my home. We all need that. Accountability is key. So that the issue here is not, oh, you know, um, I can't say anything to these people. You, it's not that you can't, you must. You must tell these teachers that they're not permitted to teach your kids that socialism is a viable option for the American uh, populace. And while you're doing that, you're cracking open the, the reality report is what I call it, which I, I took for granted that my kids really understood how that worked because they've been to the grocery store with me so many times as kids. But in the capacity of shopping with mom, they're putting things in the basket. They're, you know, I want this or let, can we get that or let's make this. They put it in. They don't pay for it. But you know what? The, when the real lesson comes, your teen's driving, you have a driving teen, you give them 40 bucks, 60 bucks, whatever your weekly food budget is. Um, you know, I'm just tossing out numbers. I don't know what your food budget is, but you give them that money, you give them a list or you say, hey, you know, we need to buy all of the food for dinner and lunch for this week. And, you know, because we have breakfast stuff here. So we're going to buy dinner and lunch for this entire week. Here's the money. Um, I'm going to give this over to you guys. Head out to the store. They are much less likely to waste food after they go and they try to fit what they want to buy to eat in with what they know they have to, to actually buy food for. Six dinners, six lunches for five people. And you got to make sure if, if, is there any dog food at home? You know, is, is the kibble full or you, you need to buy a bag of that too? And also you don't just buy food. Do we have bleach in the house? Do we have a uh, laundry detergent, dishwasher tabs? You know, with, do we have the things that we need for the toiletries? Is there toilet paper? When they start going to the store and realizing how much money is actually being spent and how the cost of things it helps bring these things down to them in, in a very real form. And I know for some parents, you know, they don't do that when their kids are in high school. They wait until their college student, you know, the college student has to go out and buy some things. Or maybe as a young adult, they're out and they're buying things for the first time. And I, you can do that, but I just feel like it's, it's kind of a little late for them. Getting that experience when they're younger, going to the grocery store and buying the groceries for the household for the entire week or two weeks if you're a biweekly uh, shopper, doing that means that your child is literally going to have that reality check right then. 
And then they're going to be very suspect of someone who says, well, private property ownership is a problem. What we really need is we need for the government to own everything and everyone would have the exact same stuff. The first thing they're going to think is, well, how can everybody have the same stuff if some people are a family of two and other people are a family of eight? And how will it be the same stuff when some people like to take care of their home and, you know, mow their grass and and keep the trash up off the ground and other people seem prone to destroying everything that they touch? How do we all have the same thing? How about the fact that people who have very similar backgrounds and grow up in very similar homes, graduate from the same high schools, often have radically different outcomes because of their own personal effort? Even if you normalize your results, if you study a group of people and normalize, you know, account for the fact that they have the same education, they have everything the same, you know, coming from two parent households, same socioeconomic strata, even if you cherry pick and find groups of individuals who are identical, you still find that some of them want a large family, some want a small, some want to live on acreage with huge property responsibilities, and some want to live in a condo where they don't even have to mow the grass. Some of them have the education well, they all have the same education. You're picking a group of like individuals. They all have the same education. Some are driven to continue on and get more education so that they can be in management. And others are perfectly satisfied to be in a cubicle earning a nice living and having a middle-class lifestyle. And they focus their efforts on other pursuits. Some want children. Some want to adopt. Some don't want any children. Some, you know, will buy dogs and those are their quote-unquote fur children. In any case, you can't normalize a situation and say every person will want exactly the same thing when it comes to how they're going to live their lives. So it, it, there's, there's a way to approach this, which is the way we're currently approaching it. Capitalism permits everyone to have the outcome they desire and to work and strive to improve their outcomes based on the amount of effort they want to pour into it. Socialism does not permit that. It's command and control from a very tiny group of individuals over everyone else. Uh, We can't be, we can't be sleeping on the fact that we need to share that. We have to talk about that. We have to tell our kids that, inoculate them against the destructive forces in public education that want to turn them into socialists. We have to be real with them and show them how everything works. All right, when we get back, we'll have David Almasi right here on Stacy on the Right. Stay there. It's amazing, but true. When it comes to one of America's biggest household expenditures, health care, a lot of people think they've got no choice. People are used to thinking we have to do it this way, but they don't. Yes, you have the freedom to choose an alternative with your health care. It's MediShare, and it costs way less than the alternatives. The typical family saves $500 a month, not a year, a month. And if you're single, this can save you a lot too. And let's face it, a big reason MediShare is 400,000 people strong, it just works. They've shared over $3 billion in medical bills, so they can help share your needs too. Joining MediShare for so many people is one of those things that makes you say, why didn't I do this before? So yes, the time has come for something better. Look into joining MediShare and see why so many people are opting out of the old way and into the new. Why not look into this? Just call 855-PSALM-23. That's 855-PSALM-23. 855-PSALM-23. 
This is Viewpoints with Kirby Anderson. A few months ago, an article in Business Insider proclaimed divorce isn't a failure, therapists say. In fact, it could mean your marriage was a success. Now, I didn't pay much attention to it since you can find secular counselors and therapists who will say just about anything. But more recently, John Stone Street did a breakpoint commentary on the article and used it to illustrate some important points about the biblical words for love. Instead, I would like to look at the premise of the article. Does a divorce really mean that your marriage was a success? I don't think couples that have been through a divorce would say that. I doubt their children would say that. One of the chapters of my book, Christian Ethics in Plain Language, documents what psychologists have discovered about the emotional and economic damage of divorce on children and even later in adult children of divorce. Years ago, Diane Medved wrote a book with the arresting title, The Case Against Divorce. The book begins with this admission. She says, I have to start with a confession. This isn't the book I set out to write. I plan to write something consistent with my previous professional experience helping people with decision-making. To my utter befuddlement, the extensive research I conducted for this book brought me to one inescapable and irrefutable conclusion. I had been wrong. The therapists cited believe that marriage can help you grow and sometimes you change so that you conclude your marriage isn't helping you anymore. If you go into marriage expecting to help you grow and you're not growing, then divorce is the next step. If, however, you go into marriage with a biblical view of two becoming one flesh, then getting a divorce is not a sign of success. I'm Kirby Anderson, and that's my point of view. For a free copy of Kirby's booklet, A Biblical View on Antisemitism, go to viewpoints.info slash antisemitism. Viewpoints.info slash antisemitism. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Hey, everybody. Check us out at StacyOnTheRight.com and also OneNewsNow.com. That's our news site for American Family Association, and we'd love to have you uh, share the stories over there. Read them. They're great. The work over there is fantastic. Right now, it's my pleasure to welcome my friend David Almasi from the National Center for Public Policy Research. He's also one of the key operators running around the country bringing these issues to the forefront with the Free Enterprise Project, this time United Airlines. David, thanks so much for being with us today. No problem. Glad to be here. So let's talk about this. You are doing this work with Justin Danhoff. The two of you go to shareholder meetings for these major public corporations, and you confront the CEOs and you know whoever is in charge there um, that, that w- is hosting the shareholder meeting about their activism and that, that kind of goes against increasing the share price, which is what they're really there to do. Right. The Free Enterprise Project is meant to hold corporate America to the free market standards that make it great. And unfortunately, a lot of corporations are allowing themselves or gladly becoming a tool of the left as far as pushing policy and changing lifestyles. And so the National Center, we own stock in many of these companies, well, all the companies that we go to, and anybody that owns stock can go to a shareholder meeting and raise questions. But unfortunately, on the right, not many people do. So we are, we are actually the only conservative shareholder activist organization that's out there, and uh, we, need to, <laughs> we need more help and support to, uh, to make sure corporate America understands what they're doing. 
Well, I, for myself, years ago, I went to one for Arch Cole because they were headquartered here in St. Louis. And mm-hmm. it was quite the experience. Now, back then, I wasn't quite as pushy and outspoken as I am now. But I will <laughs> say it was a it was an interesting experience. Now, um, you said you need help. You can always call on me to travel to the shareholder meetings. You know that. But Thank in you. any case, this one was interesting because it had to do with the National Rifle Association, which is actually in the news right now for other things. But you're asking them why they've dropped this discount for NRA members that they used to have and as a part of what they offered to people. Right. Back after the Parkland shooting, a number of corporations decided to be virtue signaling, and they jumped on campaigns where they said they were going to break their ties to the NRA. So in the case of United Airlines and Delta Airlines, separate companies, they stopped offering a discount that um, they were offering for people to go to the NRA National Convention. There's also uh, companies like uh, a lot of uh, rental car places um, also broke ties for similar reasons. And then you had uh, the First National Bank of Omaha, which uh, decided to drop the NRA credit card, their affinity credit card. So a lot of companies were getting out there. They're getting in the headlines for this. In the case of United, its chairman and CEO, Oscar Munoz, said when we confronted him about it and said, you know, this is bad business because you're going to alienate customers, people who support the Second Amendment, support gun rights. And he said that he did this as a personal decision for the United family because a daughter of one of the United pilots was killed at Parkland, which we're all sympathetic about and we're all sorry that that happened. But still, the NRA is not a gun maker. The NRA is simply an advocate for gun rights, and they took a responsible stand after Parkland to try to uh, figure out uh, solutions to make schools more safe in that. So we felt it was they went much too far on that, and we confronted them again yesterday when we went to their uh, to the shareholder meeting to say, look, in the years past, we found out that there are many United employees that don't think that that's a family value that they have, they were never asked about these things, and that why did he make a personal decision on the part of the company when he didn't consult shareholders, he didn't consult his board, and didn't consult the members of his united family when he made it? So I I just want to make sure I understand what you just said. (laughs) He did not consult with the employees, nor did he go to the the board of United. I assume they have some kind of board or, or, you know, leadership organization. Board of directors, yeah. Yeah, he didn't he didn't take he just took it upon himself and said, this is something I want to do because we have a pilot who's lost a child here and ended the discount. And and again, he's also aware that it wasn't an NRA member who did that shooting there. Right. It was just I mean, after Parkland, the left saw a chance to go after the NRA. They saw a chance to to get more than a pound of flesh out of the gun rights, civil rights lobby. And they did it in groups like or companies like United and Delta and Avis and Alamo and other places were glad to jump on. And in this case, I mean, Oscar Munoz, the CEO of United, um, he said he made some calls, but this wasn't a board vote. This was something that uh, maybe he consulted with a few of his uh, his colleagues, and they said, "Yep, we're going to drop uh, we're going to drop the NRA, and we're going to get lots of headlines for saying that we're no longer going to do business with the NRA." Um, and they do so, I would think, at their peril, because 
people have choices. Consumers have choices, and they can choose not to to use United as their airline anymore. And um, he also was uh, going against the the views of a lot of his employees because when when Inc. Magazine started asking United employees, hey, as part of the United family, do you agree with what um, your chairman did? And four to one, they were against making this political decision on the part of the company. And those who did support him were people that probably would have been happy if he dropped support for the NRA in January of 2018 rather than February of 2018 after the Parkland shooting. Wow. So the connection to a news event, tragedy, of course. I mean, I'm not denying the tragedy that occurred, but the fact that his decision was based upon that event instead of just a closely held belief that he wanted to execute on mattered to the employees. Right. There there was no business necessarily behind it. It was all emotional. And so I asked him yesterday when he said, well, you took me out of context. This is this is a, because it was United Family. And I said, well, you know, if you're going to make these kind of family decisions based on these issues, are you going to drop any business relationship you may have right now with Purdue Pharma, the company that's uh, been under fire recently for being the, the marketer of OxyContin and other opioids? That certainly uh, would be along that same kind of logic. And as a joke, I said, how about you go after HBO and, stop and drop a business relationship with them or parent company AT&T because so many people in your family, uh, your United family, are angry about the Game of Thrones season finale. I mean, where do you stop, the, where do you stop making that, uh, that distinction and start looking at just business relationships and not alienating your customer base? Because that's, that's, like that's exactly what they're doing. Well, what did he say to that? He said, uh, thank you for your comments. Next question, please. <laughs> <laughs> he would, he would not, Standard. <laughs> not address that. Okay. Because <laughs> I was wondering if he would address the Game of Thrones thing, cultural phenomenon. I don't watch Game of Thrones, but I know I maybe it's just me and our family and maybe three other people in America who aren't watching it. Um, no, seems I'm, like I'm it's, not going to watch it either. <laughs> okay. Well, no, you know, we tend to line up, so... Counseling lines set up for people who are unhappy with the end of the TV show. So, if that's going to, if, if people are affected that much, maybe that's something that Oscar Muno should think about, just like he thought about it for guns. And like I said, when he said that one of the pilot's children was was killed at uh, Parkland, how many United employees might be affected by the opioid epidemic? How many employees may have died of opioid overdoses, or have a family member who has died of that? And that's affected the United family. So why isn't he making a decision there? He's only making the decision based on the political idea uh, that the NRA is a bad organization. So I think he's definitely showing a political bent rather than the moral or other kind of idea, which I think he thinks he is doing. Um, it's That's often also the case, is that they have people... Um, counseling them and saying, oh, this would be a good thing to do. This will this will help you out. But no, I think it's going to actually harm them in the long run when people start hearing about what the company has done and they choose to take their money elsewhere. So let's let's unpack that just a tad, because while you were describing <laughs> the, you know, his thought process behind why he did this, it occurred to me and I, maybe I'm far off, David, you let me know. 
But shouldn't he be more concerned with the perception among United customers? I know for myself, I'll just speak to my for myself. I don't fly on United because I had a bad experience with them a few years back traveling to a conference. Uh, it was Americans for Prosperity Conference in Las Vegas, Nevada. And the experience was so bad that I stopped flying United. And so recently for work, um, my employer booked me through on a United flight and I took that flight with our daughter. So it was one leg was United, one leg was Delta on the way to California. And again, I experienced this kind of just not good attitude from the people who work at the counter and everywhere else. They just treat you like you're like a bunch of cows that they're herding through. Mm-hmm. And they don't have a sense of humor. The flight attendants don't have a sense of humor. The pilot didn't have a sense of humor. Nobody had any kind of like it wasn't upbeat at all. Wouldn't it be better? And I, I mean, I'd love to ask him this question, but it's it's worth asking. Wouldn't it be better for him to focus on improving employee customer relations, improving the kind of training that they receive so that they're better at presenting a pleasing front face to their customers and also updating their fleet of planes. It seems like they have the oldest planes in the fleet They, you know, they rattle and they make a lot of noise when they take off and it's just disconcerting. What, what about that? Cause it seems like he's really much more focused on activism than he is on their bottom line. Uh, he did talk about new planes and he did talk about employee morale and things like that in a positive light, of course, cause it's the, it's the, um, their annual event to show off to, to shareholders. But yeah, that's a good question to ask. And that's something that he should be paying more attention to rather than alienating people with taking a political stand. Um, not at the United meeting, but at the Under Armour meeting a couple weeks ago, I think I got a better example where I was going in there saying, why is the company taking a stand on transgender athletes? And they are, they were supporting uh, if whatever sex you you think you are, they'll they want you to be an athlete and and to compete. So you have situations where you have men competing against women and winning titles, and we said that was unfair, and they said that they supported it essentially. I had a conversation with a communication staffer afterwards, and all she could translate in her mind, it seemed was that I wanted to stop them from selling their, the Under Armour products to people who are gay. I'm like, no, that's not it at all. I want you to sell your products to everybody in the world. I just don't want you to be perceived as unfair, as, as promoting unfair competition. And I want you to be out of politics. And I don't want you to support these gay organizations that have an axe to grind against people of faith and, and fair competition. I could not get that across to her in a half-hour conversation. It kept on coming back to the idea that we must be bigots, that we want to stop them from selling to uh <laughs> I'm to only laughing community. because that's so typical. Yeah. So you, David Almasi, you spend most of your time around the Us Project 21 members. <laughs> We're all mm-hmm. black. <laughs> My last interaction with you was you buying lunch for a group of us. We were all black and you were the only white guy at the table. <laughs> you bought, so I mean, for, for a bigot, you're no good. You're like, yeah. you are no good at being a bigot. You have to try harder. <laughs> uh, oh, sorry. sorry. But that's, right. that's the kind of thing. You, you have these companies that just either it's their government affairs staff or their communication staff or the people that are advising them. They're looking at, through a very skewed view of the world, and they think that uh, 
everyone that doesn't believe the same way as they do are haters or something like that. One of the big things that uh, Oscar Munoz was very happy about, mentioned it twice during the meeting yesterday, is that United is the first airline that allows non-binary gender people to to book by whatever they think their sex is. That's one of the big steps forward that the the um, company is doing. And I can't figure out. I, I told my wife, I said, we're, we're going to be flying next month. It's like, please call them and tell them I'm a panda. Because I mean, that's, that's what the, that's what the, the, um, the company is more, is more concerned about. They're more concerned well, about diversity, inclusiveness, all these sorts of things, rather than things like the Second Amendment. Well, okay, so I'm an emotional support horse, the miniature mm-hmm. horse oh. size. You're a panda. <laughs> I mean, I'm just going up by the stuff that I think looks so cute and pets I'd like to have that my husband won't let me have. He won't let me have a mini <laughs> horse, and he's been pretty adamant about it. He And he won't change his mind. Like, I thought I could wear him down. He's still just as firm as he was when I started talking about it eight years ago when the kids wanted it too. Now the kids no longer want it because they're going off to college, and so it's just mm-hmm. me. We have a dog, but I mean, he's not nearly as fun as an emotional support horse would be. Um, so I, I'm, I'm with you. But the other thing is, what exactly does that solve for the for the bulk of their customers? Because transgenders are such a tiny sliver of society. Um, wouldn't it be that they would have that? So, again, this isn't something that you get on the plane and you announce I booked as, you know, non-binary. You just book as non-binary and then they, they're they still tasked with identifying you because isn't the whole reason why they ask you for your name and your gender so that they can match you up with your plane ticket in case of an accident or in case there's an incident and they need to pull you off the plane. They want to find you and they need to know if you're a man or a woman so they know who to look for when they see, you know, Carl such and so or Carly could be a girl or a guy. They need to be able to kind of delineate. It, it says it's a 40-year-old man. You know, and that's what they're looking for. I mean, I look. Why are you trying to bring logic into this? I don't know. I don't know because it just starts (laughs) to hurt your own brain when you try to figure out what they're trying to do. And and that's what he's proud of when I'm telling you, David, after and it's not that it was like torture, but it was just bad enough for me to think we paid this much for this ticket. And this is my experience. I'm going back to Southwest, which is I go with them just because they're they're more upbeat and they're nicer. We got 30 seconds. I'll give you the final word. What? I don't know. Well, yeah, the most important thing for these businesses to understand is that they have a product to sell. They have a service to sell. And they need to focus on that and appeasing everybody rather than looking at these very leftist um, special interests. Mm. And we, just want, we want them to be successful. Yeah, and, and I want them to be successful too because I prefer to have another option. But, you know. David Almasi, Free Enterprise Institute. Thanks for joining us. We'll be right back. I have two dogs. Sometimes when we go walking, they'll get a sticker in their paw. My dachshund will stop, hold up that foot, and just look annoyed because it has slowed her down and that she needs my help to get rid of it. The terrier, on the other hand, would rather limp along like, I'm okay, I'm just walking it off, than to stop for me to take that painful thing out of her paw. It made me think. We're like that when it comes to our relationship with God. We either have complete reliance on Him and turn to Him as soon as we have a need, or we go along suffering, trying to fix it all ourselves. I've done both. How about you? There's lots less pain and suffering when you choose to turn to Jesus right away. 
But maybe you've never made the decision to follow Him and don't know how to ask Him. This life is much easier to navigate when you're relying on Jesus. If you'd like to find out more, call 888-NEED-HIM or chat with us at chataboutjesus.com. Life is never picture perfect. Human beings come in all different shapes, sizes, colors, and abilities. No matter how much we plan, no matter how much we think we're prepared, the unplanned happens all the time. It's how we respond to the unexpected that shows our true humanity. But many do not see the value of every human life. Too many are willing to discard those who don't fit the picture of perfection. Abortion destroys the chance to love and to be loved. We never know what will fill the frames of our lives or how empty those frames can be when we allow exceptions. Learn more at www.radiance.life. This is Fox on Justice. The issue before the Supreme Judicial Court of Maine, who gets the dog? Kelvin Liriano adopted Honey before he and Jessica Sardina became a couple. When they broke up, each of them wanted Honey. In the laws of all 50 states, pets are considered property. And since Liriano signed the adoption papers for Honey, a lower court ruled the dog belongs to him. But Sardina says Honey is family to her, not property. And Honey actually lived with her even before Liriano did. And so the Maine Supreme Judicial Court weighed the arguments, maybe with a touch of skepticism. Chief Justice Lee softly asking, what happens with the dog when unmarried parties go their separate ways? Is that really something we want judges to spend their time on? The Chief Justice said courts cannot treat a dog the same way they treat children, but asked if maybe there is some legal room to treat a pet not as a person, but perhaps not quite the same thing as a couch. With Fox on Justice, Hank Weinblum, Fox News. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Youth vaping is a public health crisis. The number of children using electronic cigarettes has increased. Teens are getting hooked on these e-cigarettes, creating a whole new generation of smokers. The Surgeon General declaring e-cigarette use an epidemic among young people. And health officials believe it's creating more tobacco smokers. The brain is still developing at this young age. When teenagers use tobacco, they're quite literally altering their brain's chemistry and making it more susceptible to addiction. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has introduced legislation to raise the smoking age from 18 to 21. The Tobacco-Free Youth Act, a new bipartisan bill proposing to raise the nationwide age. And it's been led by Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and Virginia Senator Tim Kaine. It's our responsibility as parents and public servants to do everything we can to keep these harmful products out of high schools and out of youth culture. The health of our children is literally at stake. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the program. Stacey Washington here. And I'm so glad we were able to have these substantial conversations today on the show with Lieutenant Colonel Alan West, who's also a congressman, and with uh, David Almasi of the Free Enterprise Project, which is a part of National Center for Public Policy Research, which also has as one of their arms, uh, Project 21, which I'm on the co-chair of uh, Project 21. So uh, that's the circle that is completed by me sharing all of that. <laughs> so welcome back to the show. You were just listening to Leader 
McConnell talking about Tobacco 21. This is an important step forward. Health organizations have applauded Leader McConnell and Senator Tim Kaine for their bill that would raise the age for the selling of tobacco and tobacco products to the age of 21. They want to remove tobacco from high schools and they want to be instrumental in stemming the epidemic of vaping. And they say that this measure could save hundreds of thousands of lives. Now, this is one of those situations that I'm I'm in favor of the government having policy that encourages people not to use harmful products. I don't think it should be something that, um, you know, is punitive. Rather, it's it's more like the carrot instead of the stick. So the American Cancer Society's Cancer Action Network, uh, the president of that organization is Lisa LaCasse, and she had a comment on this saying, today's bipartisan action by Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and Senator Tim Kaine is another welcome indication that Congress is taking the alarming crisis of increased youth tobacco use seriously and is committed to taking action. Raising the federal age of sale for tobacco products from 18 to 21 is necessary to ensure a new generation of Americans do not become addicted and face increased risk for tobacco-related cancers. Now, they have a number of comments um, that were issued by um, doctors from Unite to Prevent Cancer, American Osteopathic Association, American Academy of Pediatrics, American Society of Clinical Oncology, American Lung Association, and American College of Cardiology. Um, And of course, the CEO of the American Heart Association also came in supporting this measure. Um, Now, this is an interesting statistic shared here by her, by Nancy Brown, saying that nearly 90% of adult smokers start the habit before the age of 18, and most 15 to to 17-year-olds get their tobacco from friends who have turned 18. So raising the age to 21 would remove tobacco from high schools altogether in the current situation where it's shared with, from 18-year-olds down uh, to their their friends. And that is something that's a high school phenomenon. In first, second, and third grade, your child is usually friends with kids who are in their grade level. But by the time they get to high school, they have friends who are a couple years older than they are and a couple of years younger. And not having access to tobacco in those age ranges would be a great um, public health policy move. Anything that we can do to lower cancer rates that that is, isn't some radical leftist ideological push, it, it's, it's great. It's also nice to see a Democrat and Republican come forward with this legislation. So I think it's good. Um, I thought it was worth sharing here on the show, and I'm glad that, to see them doing something together. Uh, so now I want to pivot over to an immigration issue. The Social Security Administration has actually notified employers of potential unauthorized workers. And you're probably thinking, oh, you know, it's probably what, you know, 20,000, 80,000 employers. Well, take a listen to this and, you know, hold on to your, uh, your, your door handle if you're in the car or your, your seat in your office. Hold on if you're in the kitchen. Hold on. Buckle up for this one. It's number three. The Trump administration is cracking down on businesses who hire illegal immigrants. One America's Eddie McCubbin reports. More than 500,000 employers have been notified by the Social Security Administration that some of their workers' names do not match the provided Social Security number. The notifications, which have been sent out since March, could likely impact the agriculture, construction, and hospitality industries, which, according to the New York Times, rely heavily on illegal immigrant workers. 
Mismatched names and social security numbers could indicate the hiring of a person not authorized to work in the U.S. or could be the result of unreported name changes or typos. The practice of notifying employers was put on hold in 2012 during the Obama administration. In 2016, Pew Research said there were nearly 8 million illegal immigrants working in the U.S. Employers are given 60 days to contact the employee and correct the issue. Most illegal immigrants choose to quit in an effort to avoid action by immigration authorities. But businesses could face fines if they were found to have hired illegal immigrants. Wow, so that's some some reporting from one American News Now about the illegal immigration. So were you astounded by that number? A half a million businesses were notified? Also, the fact that businesses had stopped receiving the notifications because the Obama administration had made the decision not to uh, to do that work. So they, they basically said, stop sending out these notifications. And so they did. So you know that also is this is a driver for illegal immigration. If businesses know they're not going to be zinged by the uh, IRS or Social Security Administration, then they're going to go forward and continue to hire people that, you know, under the table. It's cheaper labor. It means they increase their bottom line. These are business people. They're not saints. And before somebody emails me, no, I'm not condoning it. But I am. I am telling you. It is utterly ridiculous that we would have the government, the Obama administration ordering the government not to do one of the functions that they're supposed to perform. And and I'm not saying that because it's Barack Obama. If it was Donald Trump saying, well, we're not going to notify people that they're breaking the law. Why? These people, I just, I don't know what else it is that we can say or how else it was that we can express how un it's unconstitutional it's law-breaking it's wrong it's wrong all right um i want to also share with you a couple of tweets from the president he says when the democrats in congress refinish for the fifth time their fake work on their very disappointing Mueller reporting finding they will have the time to get real work of the people done move quickly He says, I was extremely calm yesterday with my meeting with Pelosi and Schumer, knowing that they would say I was raging, which they always do, along with their partner, the fake news media. Well, so many stories about the meeting use the rage narrative anyway, fake and corrupt press. I feel this is where I feel really sad for the president because it it doesn't matter what he says. It doesn't matter what he does. They're going to say horrible things about him. They're going to say and and point the finger at him in any way they can to make him look bad. Um, so last topic for today's show, and, and we kind of touched on this a little bit in the interview with David Almasi, um, who, let me just say one, one quick little thing about this assertion by, uh, the JP Morgan Chase person or whichever shareholder meeting he was at, where the person said he was, he he was bigoted and didn't want to sell products to, to gays. Couldn't be further from the truth. David Almasi is one of the nicest people you'll ever meet. When you when you meet him, you instantly like him. He's a brilliant writer and he's dogged about his support of the Constitution and the American ideal. And he just every day gets up and does the work that they've created, you know, things that they've decided they're going to do in order to advance limited government and 
kind of all the things that I espouse uh, being right-sided politically here on the show. He couldn't possibly be less of a bigot or anything like that, which I wasn't kidding when I said, you know, he's, every time I see him, it's, it's kind of like, we're going to this event or we're going to that event. And he's always, hey, join in with us, come with us. Let's Uber over together. Let's, you know, that whole bit. So I just, it's not true. Um, but that's the only place they have to go. Oh, you're a bigot. As soon as you say anything, oh, you're a bigot. Okay. So here we are. He mentioned Game of Thrones. Um, and you might recall that Joshua Phillip has been on the program before. He's the editor over at the epochtimes.com. And he's written this piece, which is so timely. He says, why is it that a kid wearing a MAGA hat, smiling at a Native American drumming in his face can become a national scandal, but a mainstream performance can have a performer surrounded by demonic figures dancing in flames, showing depictions of the Statue of Liberty in ruins, and no one seems to bat an eye. He's talking about Madonna's performance in Eurovision. So Eurovision 2019, they had a performance there and it was held in Israel. Now, Eurovision is not a minor event. In 2018, it had almost 190 million viewers, which is double the Super Bowl's 98 million. Openly satanic imagery is fairly common in Madonna's performances and with performances by major pop singers overall. So it wasn't especially unusual for her, but the seeming lack of attention to these issues says something about how warped the standards in entertainment have become. And I, I just encourage you, when you're talking to your kids about this kind of stuff, and I, I know I go to that a lot, but what I see now is among some some people that, you know, I, I observe them. These are not close friends, but I observe them. Older people are now looking back and they're seeing that in spite of everything they did with their kids, their kids are still becoming leftists. And they're wondering what happened. And it's not so much the leftist orientation. Yes, that's a problem. But it's more that these same leftist kids who were raised in church, they don't go to church anymore. These same kids who were taught to revere the Bible and to respect authority, they don't respect authority. They think the Bible is not worth cracking open. They never look at it. And they're not going to church. And they're raising the grandchildren of the people, you know, the, the people who they were Republicans, they were conservatives, they are Christians. They're raising their grandkids to be these kind of modern, they're automatons. All they're doing is learning everything about being a leftist, same-sex marriage, transgenderism, respect for every kind of lawlessness. The, a lot of the kids, they're allowed to curse with their parents. I, I know numerous couples like this, they're younger. They say that a curse word is just a word. And if an adult can say it, a child can say it. Children are going to be exposed to these words. So instead of stigmatizing the words, they allow the children to say the curse words to their parents so that they can teach them when it's appropriate to use curse words and when it's not. So they treat curse words the same way they would treat words about any other thing, like any, any words. So curse words are just words. And I could go on and on and on describing the differences in the way that, first of all, this is, you know, you look at how you were raised, you look at what was acceptable to in your household. I remember um, one of the things that I knew, me and my friends, none of us had any parents that would accept disrespect. And no matter what it was that we were engaging in or doing, disrespect would not be permitted towards parents. Um. So we're talking about this performance by Madonna and she began with her 1980 song. It's a 1989 song, Like a Prayer. 
Uh, the dark hooded figures on a staircase with horn devil face projected behind them in red light. And then she went to one of her new songs called Future. And there's this rapper named Quavo. He shows up. The dancers pull off their robes. They're wearing white or black costumes and World War One gas masks. Now, Madonna pretends to caress, then kill the ones in white and declares they think we're not aware of their crimes, but we're just not ready to act. And a screen in the back shows images that resemble Catholic priests. Then she says, can't you hear outside of your supreme hoodie the wind that's beginning to howl? It blows on the backup dancers. They pretend to die. And then the set is engulfed in hellish flames. Then she says, not everyone is coming to the future. Not everyone here is going to last. And the background image shifts and shows a broken and crumbling Statue of Liberty in a destroyed New York City and then transitions to other hellish scenes showing the stage engulfed in flames. Now, obviously, there's some dark occult symbolism there. Um, She wore an eye patch with an X on it, which presents a representation of her Madam X persona, which is something new she's been doing. She also could have just worn the eye patch because she thinks it's cool. Um, She frequently covers up one eye. Um, and a lot of pop stars will sometimes do it, but I, I just, I, I go back to, you know, this is a luminist and Luciferian and, um, there's a bunch of different things that we could go through here, like to, to kind of describe what this all comes down to, like the meanings within the dark occult, the light bringer, the garden of Eden, forbidden fruit, tree of knowledge, dark occult pursuits. But in the end, there should be outrage and parents should be saying, we're boycotting her music. Adults should be saying, I'm not listening to this. It's garbage. It's not bringing anything to me. Instead, we have silence. Maybe nobody's paying attention. I don't know. 198 million people watched. All right, that's the program. It's Friday. Have a fantastic weekend. Get in the pew on Sunday or Saturday and we'll be back with you on Monday. God bless.